to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Veritas Mizzou. So excited to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be with you all. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Kyle Richter, one of the pastors at The Crossing, the church that they mentioned that we're connected to here in town. Specifically, I have the privilege of Helping co-lead Veritas with Austin, uh, the bald guy that spoke last week. So I can say he's bald because he is, uh, and he's also one of my best friends. Uh, I've been on staff for about 12 and a half years, which I realize uh, is somewhat mind-blowing for some of you because I look like a college student. It's okay. You are the only one. Just the other day, I hope you're not in here, but one of you freshmen asked me what dorm I lived in. If you think I look young now, here's a photo of my wife and I back at our high school prom. No, I'm just kidding. That's actually our wedding day. Um, I was looking at this photo this morning, but you can see the top half of my head. It's probably better. I look like I'm 14. I have no idea why I'm all married, especially with that awful haircut. Um, aside from lacking style and looking like a teenager, I show that photo in particular because it was taken right where I'm standing. We have the stage was our dance floor, which was a lot of fun. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that, that photo was also probably the last time that I ever danced at a wedding, or, or anywhere for that matter. Uh, I'm many things, but a dancer is not one of them. I know, as if you needed another reason to think that I wasn't cool. It's okay, I'm not. Enough about me, though. Uh, let's move on. Back in 2002, June of 2002, the St. Louis Cardinals were scheduled to play the Chicago Cubs at uh, Wrigley Field in Chicago. Now, if you're a fan of any of the Cards, the Cubs, you know, or, or just a fan of baseball in general, you know that that's an intense rivalry, right? The matchups are often tense, and, and this particular day in June, it was no different. Emotions were high, expectations were up, growing as fans and players entered the ballpark. Soon, though, all of that excitement had turned into confusion. That's because players had never come to the field, and it was almost game time. You see, this was unusual. Where, where were they? Well, eventually, that confusion, it, it turned to great sadness when a devastating announcement was made. Cardinals ace pitcher Daryl Kyle, a three-time All-Star and major league pitching sensation, had been found dead in his hotel room See, not long before his death, Daryl Kyle had passed the team physical with flying colors. Doctors said that he showed no signs of health problems. He wasn't on any medication. He appeared to be in excellent health. But later in the day, when uh, the autopsy was performed, medical examiners realized that, that he died of a massive heart attack. His main coronary artery was 90% blocked. You see, Daryl Kyle seemed perfectly healthy. 
He had no medical issues. He was a six foot five professional athlete, one of the best of his position, not just on his team, but in all of Major League Baseball. He seemed impressive. See, from the outside, Daryl Kyle, he looked good. He seemed impressive. And while that was true, something bad was going on on the inside. His heart was sick. Now, that's, that's a sad story to be sure. But I think there's something that we can learn from it. I think there's actually a warning in it for you and for me, and it's this, that it's possible for you and me to look good on the outside while at the same time have something destructive happening on the inside. It's possible for you and me to look impressive externally but have a heart that's sick. See, whether you've been in college a, a week or, or, or several years, impressive people are all over, right? I mean, all over. That's true. My experience, I'm sure it's true of yours. People that, that look really good from the outside. Great athletes. Intellectual leaders in your classes. People who are well-connected. Influencers on campus. People with big-time internships and high-paying jobs. People with magnetic personalities that everyone seems to like. People with a large and growing social media presence. People who are well-traveled and well-spoken and well-read and well-experienced. You know those people, right? I do. Maybe you're one of them. In some sense, we're all trying to be those people, right? We're all trying to be impressive. We, we all want people to see us at our best. But regardless of what people see on the outside, what don't they see? What don't they see? What's going on inside of our hearts? What's going on inside of your heart? See, I said there's something that we can learn from Daryl Kyle's story, but really I should have said that we have a similar problem. <laughs> see, things might appear okay. Things might look good on the outside of our lives, but whether we know it or not, we all have something worse, something far more harmful going on on the inside, maybe not physically, but spiritually. A spiritual heart problem that the Bible calls sin. We sang that earlier. Maybe you're familiar with the biblical idea of sin, but, but maybe you're not. That word, it just means to miss the goal, to, to fail. Which begs the question, of course, what's the goal? Well, someone once asked Jesus the same thing. What's the goal? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 22, picking up in verse 37. Jesus replied and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, according to Jesus, according to God, the goal for all of us is to love God and others the way that he intended us to do so. See, Genesis, the, the very first book of the Bible, it, it tells us that, that God created the world and everything in it. And God creates the world good, very good, the Bible says. But as the story goes along, something tragic happens. The story goes sideways. Human beings created in God's image, they reject God in favor of themselves. They reject God's good plans for their lives in favor of their own. In short, they love themselves more than they love God. They love themselves more than they love each other. And so they miss the goal. Sin enters into the story. 
But sin doesn't just enter into their story, it enters into ours as well, because we too miss the goal. We too fail to love each other. We too fail to love the world. We too fail to love God the way that he created us to love him. And because of that, the Bible teaches, as culturally culturally unpopular as it is, the Bible teaches that you and I stand guilty before a holy God. Because of our sin, because of our spiritual heart problem, you and I, the Bible says, deserve to be punished. And we don't like that. Maybe several of you don't actually believe that that's true. And actually, if that's the case, I, I wouldn't be surprised if several of you don't. Because I know that, that, that friends... I know that some of your professors, I know that, that media, I know that our culture, I know that, that everyone is telling us that nobody knows for sure what's right. Nobody knows for sure what's wrong. And so one, one way they'll say it is moral absolutes don't exist. Nobody knows what's, what's right. Nobody knows for sure what's wrong. Now, it's one thing to say that intellectually. It's one thing to believe that. It's one thing to say it intellectually. But, but, but is it true experientially? Is it true of your experience? See, here's a, here's a question. Do you ever feel shame? Do you ever feel guilty? Do you ever feel bad for the choices you make or, or, or the things that you've done? Maybe a different way of asking. If we had, if we had a film, if we had a film of every thought that you've had, every choice that you've made, every single thing that you've done, just this past week, let alone your entire life, if we had that film, and we put it up here on this screen tonight, and we showed it for everyone to see, how would that make you feel? How would you feel if everyone in this room saw a film of your life, every thought, every word, every action? How would you feel? Why? Why would you feel that way? Where do those feelings come from? See, I find it interesting. Our, our, our culture, it doesn't believe in judgment. So we say things, and, and, and I've probably said things, maybe you said things. Certainly we've all heard it, right? Don't judge me, bro. Don't judge me. Our culture doesn't believe in sin, at least not the biblical idea of sin. And so, so we say things like, well, you do you. So don't judge me, and you do you, and yet at times, all of us, myself included, maybe we don't want to admit it, but deep down, we all feel like something's wrong with us. We all feel like something's wrong with us, whether we want to admit it or not. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with those feelings? What do we do with those feelings of shame? What do we do with those feelings of guilt? I think a lot of us try to hide them. We put up fronts. We, we, we keep people at arm's length. We, we show the good and hide the bad. Or maybe we, we constantly feel the need to, to prove to ourselves and to others that, that we're okay, that, that we should be accepted, that, that we're worthy of love, that, that we belong. We all do that, don't we? I know I do. See, the thing about it is, the thing about it is, is, is this isn't just a people problem. It's not just a horizontal issue. It's, it's a God problem. It's a vertical issue. If you believe in God, sometimes we do the same thing, sometimes explicitly, sometimes more subtly, but, but, but we try to prove ourselves to God because we think that that's what's going to make God accept us. 
And so we obey God, not because we really want to, but, but because we think that it's going to get us something. And we aren't alone. Jesus' closest friends did the same thing. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' friend Peter, says this to Jesus. He says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What didn't there be for us? You catch what he's saying? See what he's asking? He's, he's saying, Jesus, we've done our part. Jesus, we've, we've obeyed. Jesus, we've, we've jumped through all your hoops. We've done all the things that you've said for us to do. Now, what are you going to do for us, Jesus? You're not that far. But Jesus, I've, I've done my part, and now it's your turn. I know I have. In fact, that's actually how I used to interact with God most of my life growing up. I obeyed God. I obeyed Jesus because I wanted to give something. Maybe you're like me. But maybe you're not in that. Maybe, maybe this is exactly what's kept you away from Jesus all these years. Deep down, you know that, that you haven't done your part. You, you haven't jumped through all the hoops. You haven't proven yourself. You haven't performed well. You haven't cleaned up your life. If we saw that film of, of your life this past week, we would see that you're too messy. You're too complicated. You're too broken. You haven't done enough for God, so why try now? Maybe that's what you're thinking to yourself. Or maybe you've been trying. And you've been trying, and you've been trying, and you've been trying, and you fail, and you try, and you fail, and you try, and you fail to, to prove yourself to God, but you're just exhausted. And so here you are, week two of a fall semester, and you're starting to wonder if this is a semester that you should just walk away from it. If this is a semester, I should just give this Jesus thing up. Maybe this, you're on your last thread. I don't know your story. But if that's you, maybe you're following religion instead of following Jesus. See, religion says that you and I need to do something for God in order to get something from Him. Religion says that you and I need to obey God in order to be accepted by Him. Religion says that, that the way to get rid of that guilt, the, the way to get rid of that shame that we all feel, right? The way to get rid of it is just to try harder. Obey more. Prove yourself. The good news for us, the good news for us is that Jesus came to end religion. Jesus came to end religion and replace it with himself. See, in Jesus' day, there was a, a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Maybe you're familiar with the Pharisees, maybe you're not, that's all right. The Pharisees, they were a relatively small yet influential group of Jews that, that, that taught meticulous obedience to God. Now, they didn't just teach it, they actually lived it. They, they, they took obedience to God incredibly seriously. So much so that, that in many ways they actually built their sense of acceptance on their, their moral, moral and spiritual performance. There are all sorts of stories that, that we can jump to to look at the Pharisees, but tonight I want to look briefly at one from Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. Synagogue is just a place where Jews would gather to worship God. Jesus goes into a synagogue, and, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, were, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Okay, two quick questions. What's the Sabbath, and why is it problematic that Jesus may or may not heal this dude on him? 
A little context is helpful. Back in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Exodus, Exodus, God gives his people, the, the Israelites, the Jews, he gives them a command. He says that, that they have to rest one day out of seven. Tough command, right? You gotta take a day off. That's just what Sabbath means. It means to rest. Now, of course, God means for this command, he means for this law to be a good thing, a life-giving thing for his people. But fast forward to the New Testament, the Pharisees, they've, they've taken this thing that God intended for good, and they've made it a burden. Because they add a bunch of fine print to it. They add a bunch of, of regulations. 39, in fact. They, they add 39 different types of activities that, that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Things like baking. Couldn't bake. Couldn't wash wool, couldn't tie a knot, couldn't, couldn't carry anything outside of your house except for the, the clothes on your back. You couldn't light a fire, you couldn't extinguish a fire, bummer. You couldn't write, you couldn't build. My personal favorite, you couldn't sit on a field during the Sabbath. Why? Well, because according to the Pharisees, if you sit on a field, there is a chance that, that, that the saliva from your sit would fall into a seed that was laying in the soil, and it would germinate that seed, and it would cause it to start growing. And if you did that, then you were farming, and farming is work, and you can't do it. No spit. <laughs> See, if you did any of these things and more, the Pharisees, they said, you're breaking God's law. You're disobeying God. <laughs> Now the problem, of course, is that God didn't say that. These regulations, they weren't God's rules, they were human rules, they were human traditions, and, and Jesus, in this instance, in Mark chapter 3, he knows that. And so picking up in verse 3, Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, he says, stand up in front of everyone. So, so just imagine for a second, room this size, Jesus has this guy with the shriveled hand stand up in front of everyone. Everyone's looking at him. What's he going to do? He asked the Pharisees a question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Now, I'm saying the obvious here, at least it's the obvious to me. I don't think this is supposed to be a difficult question. If you're familiar with Jesus at all, if you've read any of his, if you've read any of the Gospels, if you, if you followed his life, you know that Jesus was never afraid to ask hard questions. This wasn't one of them. It's not rocket science, right? Good or evil on the Sabbath, good or evil anytime. The answer should always be good. But what do the religious leaders do? They sit there and they watch, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. What does Jesus do? Verse 5. Jesus looks around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus heals him. Do you know that this is the only place in the entire Bible that explicitly says that Jesus is angry? 
See, the only place in the entire Bible that explicitly says that Jesus is angry. Now, now what I'm not saying is that this is the only time in Jesus' life that he got angry. What I am saying, uh, or certainly I'm saying, uh, if, if, you know, if we read John chapter 2, we know that Jesus is angry when he sees the corruption in the temple courts. When we, when we see Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus' anger at, at, at the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. So, so Jesus is certainly angry at different points in his life. But Mark chapter 3 verse 5 is the only place place in the entire Bible that explicitly says that Jesus is angry. Now, maybe you don't care. I find that interesting. Maybe it's because I'm a door. I don't know. But I think it's interesting because, because we never read about Jesus being angry with the prostitutes that he encountered. You can't find anywhere in the Gospels where, where, where it says that Jesus is angry with the tax collectors he's spending time with. You can't find any place in the Gospels that says Jesus is mad at, at the criminals. He's angry with the adulterers. He's angry with the sinners that he so often spent his time with. But here we're told Jesus is angry. Jesus is deeply distressed by these religious leaders. Why? Because the Pharisees were following religion, not Jesus. Now, now let, me, let me be clear just so that I'm not misunderstood. I'm not saying that Jesus ignores the sins of some, for this, but not the sins of others. No, no, Jesus hates all sin. Right? Jesus hates all sin. I need to say that because at its core, sin is a failure to love God. It's a failure to love others the way that God created us to do so. Jesus isn't soft on sin. But in this particular case, Jesus is angry because the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're distorting God's law, they're distorting God's commands, and they're following them for the wrong reasons. See, God's command to rest, to keep the Sabbath, it, it was about restoring the weak. It was about replenishing the drain. It was about repairing the broken, healing a man with a physical disability. A shriveled hand on the Sabbath is exactly what the Sabbath is all about. But the Pharisees don't care about that. They don't want Jesus to heal the man because they're more concerned with following human rules. They're more concerned with following human tradition. And in some sense, they're like Daryl Kyle. From the outside, they look really impressive. The Pharisees knew the scriptures incredibly well. They, they had a devout prayer life. They lived morally exemplary lives. They, they looked really good on the outside. But on the inside, their hearts were stubborn. On the inside, their hearts were as shriveled as the disabled man's hand. All that mattered to the Pharisees was performance. You see, their gospel, their good news was, if you obey, if you perform, then you'll be accepted by God. <coughs> Following religion, not Jesus. There's a movie, Chances Are You Haven't Seen It, because it's old. Um, but, but maybe you've at least heard about it. Uh, maybe not. It's okay either way. Uh, called Chariots of Fire, right? It's about two athletes, two, two runners who um, are, it's a true story based on the 1924 Olympic Games. And, and if, uh, if you know the story, or I guess even if you don't, um, there's a point in the movie when one of the runners, he's, he's talking about why he competes, why, why he races, why he's there. And this is what he says. He says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Ten seconds to justify my existence. His name was Harold Abrams. For Harold Abrams, running was the way that he could prove himself to a watching world. 
you ever feel like that? Like you have to justify, maybe it's not in 10 seconds, but, but in some amount of time or, or some season of life, like you've got to justify your existence. Like you've, you've got to work and work and work to try to prove to yourself, prove to your friends, prove to your fraternity, sorority, prove to your teammates, prove to your classmates, prove to your parents, maybe prove to God that you're enough, that you should be accepted, that you belong. You see, when we turn performance as our hope, we, can, we convince ourselves, when we convince ourselves that we have to get our act together in order for God to love us, we're not following Jesus, we're following religion. Every religion in the world, every single religion in the entire world, to some extent, says you have to live a certain way in order for God to bless you. You have to perform in order to be accepted by God. And, and so religion is this endless loop, right? Race after race. Thing after thing, performance after performance, trying to justify our existence. Is that really what you want? Is it really, if you're honest with yourself, is that really what you want? Never really at peace, certainly never at rest. Trying and trying and trying. You see, when you and I follow religion instead of Jesus, that's what we get. An endless loop. When I was in grad school in St. Louis, I remember um, one of my professors said something to me that, that I've never forgotten. Maybe you've heard this, um, maybe you already know it. I didn't know it at the time. Um, but he said to us, he said, hey, do you know the last words of Buddha? You know, the great religious leader. He said, do you know the last words of Buddha? Never cease striving. Never cease striving. Last words. In other words, stay on that hamster wheel. Make sure you keep working. Make sure you keep grinding. Make sure you keep performing. Make sure you keep trying. Make sure you do. Make sure you do. Make sure you do. They said, to us, what does Jesus say? Jesus hanging on the cross, last moments of his life. What, what does Jesus say? Is he hanging there and, and does he say, look, hey, you guys better pay me back for what I'm about to do for you? His last words, does he say, you guys better be worth it? Right before he dies, does he say, you better clean yourself up, you better get your act together right now because I'm getting ready to die? No, he doesn't, does he? No, Jesus says something. His last words are the only words that will ever set you and I free from religion. Jesus' last words are the, are the only words that will ever free us from striving, from having to prove ourselves, from, from free from, from having to perform. Because before Jesus died, he takes a drink, and then he says, it is finished. Jesus made it all. He paid it all. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that you and I can add. It is finished, Jesus says. See, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. He, he took that penalty that each of us rightly deserves because of the, the spiritual condition of our hearts, because of our sin. He took that penalty so that, that we could be made right with God now and forever. And so God's acceptance of you, it's, it's a free gift that Jesus earned at the cost of his life. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. 
The work is done, Jesus says. It is finished. And so the question for, for, for all of us is, is, do we want religion or do we want Jesus? You see, because Jesus came to end religion in order to replace it with himself, that's what he's offering you. He's offering you himself. He's saying you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is receive the gift. The gift of his life. The gift of his death in our place. The gift of his perfect striving in our place. The gift of his acceptance. See, Jesus died and he rose so that we could belong forever with him. Maybe you're here tonight, and this is all new to you, and it's exciting, and you don't really know what to think, but you can kind of tell that God is doing something in your heart. Maybe you're even convinced. But maybe you just want to know more. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Our staff would love to talk to you. We would love to help get you connected. Join a small group. Come to Forward Tree. See, I know, our staff team knows that college can be confusing. On a college campus like Mizzou and, and other campuses around Missouri, it, it can be lonely. It can be confusing. It's hard. There are hundreds, thousands of stories competing for your attention. Thousands of stories competing for your allegiance. We just want you to stick around. Our greatest hope and prayer is that you would stick around and find out why we believe that Jesus is more. Maybe you're here tonight, though, and, and to be honest, what I'm saying isn't, isn't really that new. But, but maybe, like me, you often need to be reminded that, that there's nothing we can do to make God accept us. There's nothing we can do to make God accept us. I need that reminder all the time. And there's a story that I love to turn to. It's a story that I'll close with tonight. It's, it's a story from the Old Testament. Music to you guys can come back up. It's a story about... A king named David and his friend Jonathan. And Jonathan has a son who, who from the age of five is, is crippled in both feet. He couldn't walk. He couldn't take care of himself. And eventually, because of that, he becomes, he becomes very poor. Later in life, his, his dad, Jonathan, dies. And, and after Jonathan dies, King David, he does something completely unexpected. He has the crippled son brought to his house. He has him brought to the king's palace. And as you can imagine, as the story unfolds, the son's afraid. Why am I being summoned by the king? What is the king? What? What have I done wrong? And so he comes and he's standing before the king. And the king does something unexpected. He says, hey, don't be afraid. See, I've brought you here tonight to tell you that from now on, you will always have a seat at my table. From now on, I want you to know that you will always eat with me. Now imagine that news to that son. That son who was crippled and destitute, wholly dependent on others, unable to do anything about his condition. He's brought to the king's table because of the grace, because of the mercy of the king.
are encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.